Imagine that uh, like Universal Music Group tomorrow announced that like one of their flagship artists is going to be like Iron Man. Hi, everybody, and welcome to How Music Charts, the podcast where we explore the dance between interpreting data and making creative decisions in the music business every day. I'm your co-host, Rutger, and you'll hear from our other co-host, Jason, very soon. This podcast is owned and operated by Chartmetric, a music data company that connects numbers to narratives to help professionals leverage the power of music. Remember, any opinions or views expressed by our guests or the co-hosts on this podcast are theirs alone, and do not in any way constitute the opinions or views of any company they work for. To preserve a tone of earnest dialogue and protect our guests, we will refrain from using names of any kind, personal, company, or otherwise, unless our guests have granted us explicit permission to do so. Today, we're excited to chat with multi-award-winning writer and researcher of all things music, business, and technology, Sherry Hugh. Over the past few years, Sherry has been a regular contributor to multiple major music business publications, including Forbes, Billboard, NPR Music, Rolling Stone, and many more. While she still has her own column on music and tech for music business worldwide, in early 2019, Sherry also started Water and Music, her own membership community, where she uses Patreon, Discord, and a weekly newsletter to keep her 8,000-plus subscribers and 700-plus patrons up to date on the latest innovations in the music industry. With the pre-college Juilliard diploma in piano performance in one hand and a Harvard BA in statistics in the other, maybe it's no wonder that Sherry decided to carve out her career at the intersection of music, data, and technology. Before establishing her writing as a popular must-read, Sherry held internships at Interscope Records, Jamplify, Forbes, and Ticketmaster, alongside even more writing and research for the Harvard Crimson, Harvard Business School, and NYU. In 2017, she became the youngest nominee and winner of the International Music Business Journalist of the Year Award at the annual Reeperbahn Festival in Hamburg, Germany. Sherry has also been featured as a keynote speaker, moderator, and panelist in many high-profile conferences, including Meetem, Primavera Sound, South by Southwest, IMS Ibiza, DIY Musician Conference, and many more. So, without further ado, please welcome to the How Music Charts podcast, Sherry Hugh. Hi, Sherry. Hey, hey, Jason. How's it going? Uh, it's going pretty well. It's it's always never uh, never a dull question in in this time. <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess thankfully things have been going pretty well. I'm just uh, hunkered down in New York as per usual. I okay, guess. cool. Yeah, yeah. How about you? As- as we all are, Rucker yep. and Michelle, mm-hmm. we're all here in the on the East Coast, and mm. you enjoying the uh, the outdoor seating? Yeah, I've been going out um, a bit more than usual for sure. I've like done some like outdoor dinners and like having outdoor drinks. It's been it's been pretty good. I'm pleasantly surprised at uh, knock on wood how like the situation has been in New York the past month or so. It's been like pretty flat in terms of like number of cases. We're a huge fans of your work, as I, I think you know this. Ready, but just for for the listeners, we just want to kind of make that clear that we've always been a fan of the way you think about the music business. And so we've got some cool things lined up uh, for our talk today in terms of looking towards the future because you're so good at prophesying, if you will. And then also like looking at the different connections between music and other verticals. Mm. So first thing we want to get into was so you did this piece for NPR. This is over a year ago, actually, in July 2019. Mm. This was about 
these letters from your future self in 2040. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I, I personally like really love them. I, I think it was a perfect medium and framework for you to kind of let loose in terms of your imagination, in terms of all the work that you do about where things are going today. So for those who might not have seen it, we'll leave links in the show notes, but it's essentially Sherry pretending she's in the future several decades and kind of writing to her present self and telling her past self all these cool things that are happening with, with music and tech. And specifically, you know, you touch on this thing called Unites. And so when it comes to advancements in streaming, it's like, why don't you explain it? It's probably a better sure, way to go. About sure. it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, I guess the main driving concept behind that piece was um, it was inspired by a feeling that some other um, like analysts and, and commentators and insiders in the industry had felt around um, like recommendation, kind of like losing steam in terms of actual change and innovation. So like if you think about um, the major streaming services, like I would say Spotify has been definitely a leader in this space. So we can start with Pandora and the Music Genome Project and kind of like spearheading that whole um, era of algorithmic music recommendation. And then Spotify comes in and offers a lot of other different kinds of options, which has expanded to, you know, Discover Weekly, um, Release Radar, Daily Mixes, et cetera. Um, and like those playlists really having uh, like an impact, a, a very tangible impact on artist discovery. Um, but those were launched around like 2016. And uh, I guess aside from what Spotify is doing with podcasts, nothing really on the music side has like come in as a new kind of recommendation format um, for the past four years. Um, so there's been, there was a speculation at the time that I was like working on this piece about what might be next. And uh, a very buzzy word in uh, Silicon Valley, more like in the tech industry, but definitely with relevance to music discovery as well is what some people call like context awareness. So knowing like where you are um, in the world, where you are in terms of like, are you at work or in your apartment, um, knowing how you're feeling, knowing the, the weather, and then having all those different factors um, influence the kind of music that's recommended to you. Um, especially given that with these streaming services, music is, um, I guess the way music is framed and curated is also increasingly functional. If you think about like these, these mood playlists, right? So, so with this piece, uh, I guess I tried to take that too. It's, it's extreme. So there are a lot of different um, startups that are kind of working on individual siloed elements of this kind of um, unified, fully context aware future where all of these different factors um, can influence the kind of music that you hear. So there are some startups and I, I, I interview them for this more like specul speculative piece too. Um, like some startups are uh, working specifically on aspects for health and like mental health. So listening to mm -hmm. music that can help you um, stay more relaxed or having more of a productivity angle of staying more focused. Um, music that like helps you sleep. There, there are a ton of different apps like working on that. Um, and yeah, kind of just, also just like taking that not not just the like surveillance aspect, I guess, of um, like monitoring all these different elements of your day and like, using that to curate entertainment for you. Um, but also, I think as a result, uh, kind of making people kind of I guess sink even deeper into their own like entertainment bubbles, which is kind of the direction that I think um, consumer tech is going in general as well. Yeah, makes sense. So mm -hmm. it's been over a year. So you wrote about mm -hmm. this like kind of speculative. What do you have you seen any kind of movement? Do you feel like in the past like year and you know a few months change? 
um, on this particular topic in terms of kind of not just the mental health or surveillance aspect, but just like any kind of progress towards like something like a super, super personalized down to the individual level um, interface? Yeah, it's a good question. I've like, so so this is my sentiment with um at the time I wrote the article as well. All more and more of the elements are there. It's just a matter of um actually uniting them. So one thing that um I think was happening a bit at the time but has accelerated is that um Spotify keeps um like giving away free Google Homes to I guess like new premium subscribers. That has to be a data play. And yeah, <laughs> no, I also I, I, I fell also for it. Home. I admit. <laughs> I admit, I am I am part of I am part of the the game that's being played here. Me too. I was like, send them over. Here's my address. Yeah, yeah. As and, and as like a as a consumer benefit, it's um, it's amazing. Like, because smart speakers uh, often are, it's like it's prohibit the cost is prohibitive for some people. So if you can get it for free, of course that's amazing. But yeah. I feel like there has there definitely has to be a, like a data play there in terms of, I mean, especially now that people are um, a lot of people are working from home, trying to understand like how the home really works, which is very different from what Spotify, I think, um, was normally used to doing in terms of branding and product development is assuming like a very mobile lifestyle. Like you're always on the go, you're, uh, or like you're, you're commuting every day, um, kind of aspects like that. So that's kind of just like one example. On the other hand, I feel like Apple of all companies is maybe Apple and Amazon may be like the best position to um, kind of like dig really deeply into this kind of paradigm because, um, yeah, Amazon dominates the smart speaker market. Um, Apple, and I guess, well, it's like uh, Apple and Android. So I guess Apple and, and Google slash Alphabet, they dominate like the mobile device market and they each have their own, um, I guess, content arms or music arms. So, so, so they can definitely um, lean more into this, but they haven't really, like, um, from my understanding, Apple Music and Apple Watch are like not that integrated. Uh, beyond just being able to maybe like play or control music from your watch. Like there isn't, they haven't gotten um, so deep as to like track your BPM and say, oh, here's a playlist with like songs that match your BPM. Like they, they haven't kind of like gotten down to that point yet. I don't know. If, and that's like, interestingly, kind of uh, not in line with Apple Music's branding anyway. It seems like they're much more focused on culture and radio and like celebrity guest hosts as opposed to like, really personalizing to to the end user. So yeah, I'm thinking about Amazon. They, um, so Amazon music marketing is very much hand in hand with like Amazon Echo marketing. It's really hard to find like a commercial um, for Echo that doesn't include music um, and vice versa. Um, so there definitely is some kind of like data play there in, in the sense, in a kind of a different sense. Sorry, I, I don't think they're getting to the point of like, uh, nudging people and like measuring kind of all these different factors and then recommending music to people. But there definitely is the case for like, okay, you're using your echo to listen to music. And then um, as you use this device more, we can maybe like upsell, um, you know, YouTube and Amazon prime membership where you can like buy more of our products. So the, the data plays, I think for a company like Amazon um, extends far beyond just entertainment or content. Um, and then this, this is kind of a separate issue um, and we can like, discuss it later, but uh, I feel like the, with all like, the privacy issues coming up around like companies like TikTok and ByteDance, yeah. um, I've gotten kind of a mixed reaction from the industry. Like the concern is, seems to be much more about 
we're losing this really important marketing channel, then, um, oh, there may be some government watching us. I, th- I think given that TikTok is so influential in the industry, the conversation tends to like lean more towards the former than, than the latter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you notice, by the way, that uh, I think it was this week that we saw followers counts for the first time on Amazon Music. Did you catch that? Oh, interesting. Um, I've not caught that. Yeah. Well, so that so that makes okay. That's very interesting, especially if you like couple that with their deeper integration with Twitch and how you can like watch artists you follow. I guess I guess they had to launch follower accounts in part for this reason, like watch artists you follow um, stream live or get notifications when they go live. Um, so yeah, so that'll be interesting because I, I, yeah, to, from my understanding, Amazon music is not really associated with like a direct to fan kind of like interaction. It's just like a convenient utility that's tied to your prime membership or echo speaker or whatever. But yeah, it'll be interesting to see like how, how, if at all, they end up rebranding themselves in that way. Um, you know, to go back real quick to the personalization or the hyper-personalization of the listening experience, like we definitely have noticed on the Trump metric side, um, on Spotify, that they, you know, they rolled out personalized playlists, you know, for some like the contextual type playlists, like, yeah, you know, cocktail right. party or drive home or whatever, that more and more, more and more of these playlists are becoming, um, you know, you know, personalized down to the individual user, mm. according to their past, you know, listening habits. Um, don't think it's ever going to happen for the the big banner ones like Rap Caviar, but uh, we right. definitely have noticed that for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I guess that, that was also part of, I guess, the Unite um, concept or vision is that, uh, yeah, exactly. So this is something that has always kind of stood out to me about the way that mood playlists have like risen is that up up until this point, and probably for a while, they have been a very like top down um, endeavor, which I feel like maybe earlier in the history of like playlisting as a concept, and like user generated playlists, um, being the forefront of uh platforms like like eight tracks is an example that comes to mind like the mood is very much determined by the user and the use case is very much determined by the user and you, you can still do that on spotify of course you can make your own playlists um but the ones that like have the most followers and and buzz and traffic are like what spotify deems to be um the best songs to listen to in the car whereas i feel like people will definitely have their own like opinions on, on what that means and so um yeah, kind of what has to happen in the product and like the way that it's built to be able to serve that. And of course, yeah, that comes with benefits in terms of like really being tailored to your experience, but then drawbacks in terms of like all the data that's collected too. So going back to the the NPR uh, futuristic article that you wrote, your your 2019 self brought up this existing te- technology of wave of weave. I think it's weave. Weave. W e a v. dot i o is the website. So where it kind of uses music that adapts to a person's real-time movement. Mm-hmm. So obvi- the obvious, you know, application at first is for runners and other fitness applications. What kind of movement have you seen in that space um, in like the past year and such? And maybe it could be about Weave, but maybe any other ones that uh, you've seen. Yeah, uh, with Weave, interestingly, they haven't, um, they haven't seemed to expand it that much on their core product, I guess, aside from maybe just improving the technology. Uh, I think, at least earlier on, at the time I was writing that piece, a main part of their value prop was being able to remix like pop songs, so well-known like pop, rock, hip-hop songs in real time, in line with um, 
I guess, in line with your tempo or your cadence. So like if you're walking and you're listening to a more down tempo piece and um, you all, like you start running, I guess, to like actually start your workout, the, the music would speed up accordingly. Um, I can imagine that's, um, especially if, if you want to work with more well-known pieces that can lead to a barrier in terms of licensing, I can imagine those conversations take a super long time in terms of like what is allowed, what isn't allowed. Um, and yeah, and, it, and it's not like, I guess we can work with like all the music that's on Spotify and do that. I guess they have to like negotiate directly with labels, which can take several months. Um, and I think they, their, their long-term goal, my sense is to um, expand to, I guess, different kinds of use cases. So, so I guess that would be a case where, um, cause so basically there are, my sense is there are similar apps. So there's like Endel, which I think I mentioned in, in the article that is not focused on working out, but is focused more on like music for relaxing, yep. kind of working at home. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think long, long, long term, Weave is interested in kind of expanding into that like area as well. And just having like a one-stop shop for, um, for, yeah, I guess like music that's adaptive to whatever you're doing. Although Weave and Endel are also very different because Endel for now, my sense is that they're not working with like existing catalog and trying to adapt them um, to, you know, a specific uh, context. They're much more about these like generative soundscapes um, that are, that uh, I guess that isn't tied to like a, a specific sound file. So yeah, my, my sense is that most of the development is actually, I think because of the like licensing costs that would otherwise be there are in the latter category of like, how do you, how do you just build like a, a, uh, an effective adaptive music, adaptive sound engine in general? I guess at that point you wouldn't necessarily call it like uh, music or wouldn't call it songs because it's just like s- sound that can kind of go on um, indefinitely. So yeah, I've, I've seen I've seen more progress in that realm, um, and yeah, interestingly, not as much. I even wonder if that's an experience I would want as a fan. And I, I don't know if that's like what Weave is going for anyway, but like, do I necessarily want, um, i trying to think of like, uh, like, do I necessarily want a very fast paced, like dubstep version of um, a Dua Lipa song? I'm, I'm not sure. Like, I mean, she, she, she did release a remix album, so maybe that's a bad example. But, um, but I mean, it's, it's I like, mean. yeah, yeah. So I, I don't know if that's, I mean, it also just raises the whole question of like, um, what is the role of the artist? in that situation it's just to like provide the ingredients um after which point an app can kind of go off and like do whatever they want um i can see some resistance to that as well before joining chartmetric i actually talked with the weave team Mm. and one of their long-term goals is to actually build a digital audio workstation that is responsive in terms of tempo Mm -hmm. and pitch so that producers would actually be recording and mixing songs in an elastic way. Mm. So that's, that makes sense because yeah. that is that is a tech that I guess they're using um, on, on their own as well. Right. Like, so they're okay. so the running app is really like a test case for that. Mm. But that's from what I understood from my conversation with them. That's like their ultimate product or vision mm. with it is to sort of change how music is made. Mm. Yeah, I think that that makes sense. Yeah, because what what they're building for it to like really take off would have to take into account like the creative process too. Yeah, 
and like kind of like not doing it over from scratch, but definitely changing it a lot. When it comes to the application of machine learning and artificial intelligence to music streaming, you you've mentioned the problem of of mood hacking. Um, so mm, essentially, mm -hmm. you know how to what is the proper response when if you are sad or depressed, you get more of the same, so you feel like you're being empathized with, or do you need something opposite to maybe counterbalance yourself? So have you seen any or, you know, any of these companies that are involved in this space kind of make any movements towards like involving more? Maybe it's like a professor of ethics, you know, at, you know, feeling, you know, at a Harvard or a Yale to help, you know, provide kind of guidance for this kind of process. Any kind of interesting things that you've written about or have seen other people kind of try to put out some thought leadership when it comes to this area of of music streaming in terms of mood hacking? Mm. Yeah, so uh, interestingly, I think the most amount of activity with this kind of mood hacking um, mindset is outside of the main um, DSPs. So not really coming from Spotify and Apple, but um, mostly coming from meditation apps. Because I guess with, with more like consumer-facing meditation apps with the likes of Headspace and Calm, um, I guess the, at least how they're marketing themselves is kind of like mood hacking. Like you have, uh, or you're dealing, I mean, yeah, I guess mood hacking is a very like techie term for, I guess, just like dealing totally with is. your emotions. <laughs> totally is. Oh my God. Yeah. No, but it's, I, I think it's, it's, it's like, uh, I think it's also valid in terms of like where they're coming from, but, um, yeah, but like on Headspace, they have specific, uh, like meditation courses for, um, I guess combating specific emotions or yeah, whether it's like anxiety or like guilt or sadness and the goal is not to say that like they'll get rid of that emotion necessarily but to just help you like better manage it and that's kind of the structure of um a lot of these courses and i mentioned headspace and calm because they've also um done a lot of exclusive music deals recently so like john legend is um headspace's chief music officer um which i find interesting as like a concept and a role um calm has done a lot more deals uh most uh, i guess most amusingly and most recently um diplo released an ambient album with them or the, i think he like uh dropped it on calm exclusively for a couple weeks i think um it'll be available elsewhere afterwards um and that it's i think those specific uh partnerships and like the music that comes out of them isn't necessarily about mood hacking i think it's more about like just branding in general on the artist side, but it is, uh, I guess, packaged within the context of this app. Sorry, within within the context of these apps um, that are like very functional and are successful if they if you can use them and successfully change your mood or or change how you're feeling. Um, so yeah, I, I think it, in part maybe it's like a branding issue with the bigger DSPs that could get in like very tricky territory for them very quickly, which I understand, especially with Spotify, it's like more of these um, more niche um, companies that are kind of tackling that. Um, uh, also very quickly, another app that I actually just discovered today, um, also outside of like the big tech ecosystem, it's mm -hmm. called Co. And it's more of like a music creation app, but basically like the user flow is that it'll, it um, asks you to um, choose from like a wide range of emotions you may be feeling like happy, sad, excited, overwhelmed, nervous, whatever, right? Um, it's a pretty, like, <clears throat> it's a pretty wide collection. And then it allows you to 
um, from a selection of like instrumentals and beats, make your own looping soundscape that like reflects how you feel. And then, um, and then at the end, you can kind of add text notes and then save it as a journal entry. I found oh. that like very interesting. What was the name of this one? Sorry. What's the name of this one again? Can you spell it's it? Cove. I think oh, um, Cove, like a little cove. cove that yes. Okay. Yes. And like the interface of like how the music loops and like what you can change it looks like a beach, like a wave, like crashing on a beach. So it's it's very very relaxing. Um, nice. And and, th and that's super different from uh, like a like an aggregator service like Spotify. Like their goal is not to like be a one stop shop to listen to millions of songs by any means. But uh, yeah, I just I thought it was interesting because it like. Um, Oh, and then also, like, as you upload and after, as you upload each entry and after you, um, after you make the music, it asks you if that process changed the way you felt. So it, it is some kind of, like, more reflective, uh, introspective mood hacking in a way. <laughs> I don't know. But, uh, yeah, so I think, like, the most interesting experiments are definitely not coming from, like, the Spotify's and Apple's of the world. All right. Uh, Rucker's got a, another rabbit hole for us to go down. Yeah, I'm going to take us down futuristic rabbit hole number two, okay. which is um, oh. fake artists and vocaloids. Mm, love it. <laughs> um, so there was a lot of talk, obviously, about um, Spotify having fake artists on playlists. I guess to open this section, what what was your read on this? And how do we ultimately determine what is a fake artist and what is a holographic artist, like a genuine holographic artist? Like, mm. how do we decide what is actually a fake artist? Mm. Great question. Very evergreen question. I think, so uh, I guess first I'll address the initial controversy, which was that, um, and, and I think in the initial case, fake artist was like a, a slight misnomer or is very like clickbaity and led people to the wrong conclusion. So like what I think happened, what I understand happened is that um, there were like two or three artists on a given playlist <clears throat> that controlled for like 50 different artists names. So those are just like aliases that all pointed back to the same um, composer or producer. I wouldn't call those like fake artists. It's just like aliases. Um, with very unclear connections or like opaque connections in terms of like who's actually behind them. Um, and I think the, another part of the controversy was that uh, I guess the, the company behind them, Epidemic Sound shared an investor with Spotify, um, which probably kind of sparked that initial partnership. So yeah, so I, I don't think fake artist is um, the, necessarily the right way to think about that specific issue i see it more as like vertical integration and like shutting um artists out that are not included in this very closed like investor ecosystem like if you're not um like one of epidemics top artists then you won't be able to participate in this um my understanding is like pretty lucrative economy in terms of these these like lean back playlists that do get a lot of streams um so I think that that was the main issue. Um, my sense is that I've like occasionally looked on on chart metric and also just like browse through some of these functional playlists to see where um, where like what what labels the songs are assigned to. 
I feel like it hasn't changed uh, that much. I think it's it's hard to find a playlist where it's like all epidemic sound artists. I don't think I see that, but like there's some where it could be like 30 to 40% epidemic sound. Um, there's some like lo-fi playlists where it's another label that will like take up most of most of the playlist. So there may be some kind of like partnership there, but um, yeah, for, for some reason uh, it like isn't getting more like investigation or buzz I think because people maybe it's because people are kind of um over the notion or the assumption that those were like fake artists it's just they're real artists but they're just taking an unfair share of the pie um in in these specific cases or maybe because it is like quite separate actually from the like major flagship playlists like rap caviar um or like all the pop um and like country playlists etc so yeah, so for some reason it's been kind of like back of mind for people. And I was okay, I thought about this mostly in the context of um, what a lot of people call like virtual influencers. So like Lil Michaela um, and like all the other CGI influencers under the Brud umbrella. Um, and mostly because Michaela has released um, some music kind of as herself that has featured real artists and the songs were written by real artists. So there is like a whole mini creative economy and team around her now. I so I don't think this is true anymore, but if you went to Brud's website, uh like earlier this year, they would have like a it was very simple. It was like a Google Doc. It redirected you to a Google Doc with a list of like uh, FAQs. And one of them was um is Michaela real? Which I think is like a very common question. And their answer was um Michaela is as real as Rihanna. <laughs> and I like I keep going back to that as as a concept and i i think i think it, it is really interesting obviously rihanna's a real person michaela's not that's like a very important distinction but in terms of how like the everyday person engages with the um brand and the persona that is rihanna it is very like parasocial in a way that like interacting with michaela is because you know Rihanna's not going to reply to every or follow every single one of her millions of fans who follow her on social media um it, on instagram at least um it seems to be like mostly one directional maybe she'll apply occasionally but um she is kind of this like uh not not detached but kind of this like far away like unattainable brand for most people and i think she is like the definition of, of a celebrity and kind of having that ethos around her um and yeah in that sense i feel like Michaela. And or at least what Brad is trying to do with her is like not um, that different in terms of like the end result of how um, people interact with her and follow with and, and follow her and are like fascinated by her. So that's kind of one angle, like um, the way people interact with Michaela, like not not actually being that different from celebrity culture, aside from the fact that of course it's like Michaela's not tied to a human personality. Um, another aspect. So in interviews, the CEO of Brad, Trevor McFedries, will often make um, comparisons to um, Disney or Marvel as like a North Star for Brad. I think that that's also quite illuminating because if you think about um, like what Michaela's profile is or what any of these influencers profiles are, it's like it's a very different version of like a comic book series. Like they're not issuing like individual books but they are telling stories through characters that have distinct personalities 
um, and to which people can very often have some kind of emotional connection to them. Um, it just, I think it feels especially uncanny now because, um, I guess, I guess also this is an interesting point, depending on the company, the avatar or like the, yeah, the, yeah, the avatar, the influencer can be like hyper-realistic or not. So like broad ops to make it super hyper-realistic, you know, place Michaela in these very real world situations, um, like going through breakups with other, uh, like other, these avatars eating out, you know, et cetera. Whereas a lot of other companies opt to make it more like anime um style avatars right at which point you know it's like it's not a real human but you could still end up with that same kind of like connection to what is ultimately like a fictional character so i think that's that's been that's been offered more clarity for me in terms of like understanding the long game for um a lot of these companies um and this kind of ties into like the holographic artists. So yeah, so with holographic artists like Hatsune Miku, I guess is the biggest example. Um, so with Hatsune Miku, it's different because I guess that was born out of like uh, software that that people used. And I guess there isn't, there's some kind of story around the avatar, but it's definitely not as, as in depth from my impression as with um, these like social media native avatars, like, like Michaela. Um, but I think that's like, yes, seeing them as like characters, the way that Disney or Marvel would make characters um, is kind of it's kind of clear to me. Yeah. In terms of like the more long term business model. And also it like uh, helps make me feel more sane about the whole situation because it's not because <laughs> it's like, oh, it's just it's just a fictional character. I can engage. I, I can engage with them or not. It's fine. Um, it's not like AI tried to take over the world, which which like I don't think they're aiming for either. It's like more of a storytelling channel. If that makes sense. So you mentioned the fact that Rihanna, obviously, is at least her brand is connected to a real person. Do you think that matters? Or mm. if I position the question in a different way, what do we lose by having a, a an artist like Little Michaela or something not connected to a real person? Does it matter? Mm. Uh, great. That's, that's a great question. Great way to frame it. I think it does matter in terms of... Um, in terms of like inspiration. So if you think about Rihanna, she I think she was signed when she was, or discovered at least, she was only like 15 or 16, so super young. Um, probably one of the, the few artists in the world who's been able to like sustain a career um, for so long, starting from that age, you know, now having grown into, um, or expanded into like a whole beauty and fashion empire outside of music. Um, and I think the fact that it is tied to a real person is super important for like younger people who, or I mean, people of any age, you know, who are looking for um, inspiration from people who were able to, you know, like work that hard and kind of get to that place where where they are today. Um, so in terms of setting an example for, um, for like in terms of setting, yeah, like a real world example for people um, and to, I guess, inspire them, I think it does matter. And I'm kind of thinking out loud now of like how that, would or would not apply to um, someone like Michaela. So I think the the way that um, and, and and not to like keep bringing it back to Michaela, but I think like given her reach, <laughs> it's it's a it's a good example because I think her like style. Um, there's definitely like a racial ambiguity around her. Um, the kinds of like captions she has, it definitely like caters to a specific generation, and it is very like aspirational, which is strange because she's not real 
in that sense, right? Like, is, is that she's not like a real human being um, navigating the world. Of course, she like tells stories about that world that we can relate to, but um, in terms of serving as like inspiration um, and taking like mindshare in people in that way, um, I can definitely see that being like a bit more um, problematic in the sense of like, uh, like there isn't actually like, you know, a real human story tied to this um, or that's, that's driving this. Um, and so like, should she, I mean, I don't even know if Brad is, is, has a role of like, sorry, has a goal of turning Michaela into like a role model. Um, I don't necessarily think that's like necessarily a goal, but th- they do have a goal of like opening people up to more like diverse um, perspectives on the world and, you know, like highlighting other um, like artists or creators. So yeah, so I think it, 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 having it tied to real person does matter um, in, in that way. And I do think, yeah, so I, I guess I hope people in this space are thinking like critically about that. Like if you are tapping into this kind of like celebrity branding or social media branding, um, you are, it does carry a lot of responsibility, especially if you are um, catering to, to younger people as well. And to bring this discussion sort of back to a practical, uh, or to pull out two practical strands from it, one, do you think major music labels will start to create their own holographic artists or influencers more and more into the future? Mm. And then number two, how does this, or how will it affect our understanding of intellectual property ownership? Mm, okay. So the first question about major labels. So yeah, so I'm I'm surprised that they actually haven't um done more on the so, so this is related to the previous, I guess an earlier question of like AI generated or like automatically generated music. They did uh Warner Music did do a deal with Endel. Um, but I think the whole the whole framing of it and like how the deal was actually done told me it wasn't like really a priority for them. Like it was kind of under a smaller label under their, um, under the group. Um, it was like in the same group as like classical and kind of like, and, and jazz and like those kinds of genres. Um, the end result wasn't adaptive. So it actually wasn't interesting, which I think goes to like the whole purpose of Endel is not to create static tracks. It's to create something that always adapts to you. But the end result of that partnership was just like Endel tracks in Spotify form that was like, or in like song form that was uploaded to Spotify, which is like not that interesting. Um, and it's kind of hard to like even playlist because those songs are meant to blend into each other. So yeah, so that kind of like fizzled out. Um, I think most of the initiatives I've seen with major labels and AI has been more from like the angle of creating like AI driven tools um, for artists. So like, uh, AI driven tools that just make the creative process easier, both for like professional artists and producers, um, but also, <clears throat> sorry, but but also for um, for everyday people and for fans as well, and just like opening up that process. I think uh, major labels are interested in kind of investing in that and having a stake in that for sure. Um, but it's it's still pretty early stage in terms of like what that actually looks like in in practice. In terms of uh, labels making their own avatars yeah i i feel like uh in, in terms of the goals 
I, I feel like they would want to sign um like a bigger influencer uh like say um like say Michaela but I can see that I feel like major labels already have a lot of like flack against them for uh like how they treat artists um who like who they end up signing how much they pay them i mean especially yeah it, this year there's been a lot more conversation around that such that to sign um an, to say you're signing an avatar like to say you're signing this is okay, this, this, this is this is a ridiculous uh scenario but imagine that uh like universal music group tomorrow announced that like one of their flagship artists is going to be like iron man or or captain america <laughs> Like, or actually, I guess, uh, yeah, uh, Captain America would be more appropriate. Like, yeah, he's um, he's going to be releasing a bunch of albums and he'll have a whole like music division. It'll be great. And like, we're going to throw a ton of marketing dollars behind this. I can see that going down very badly, especially um, given that I feel like a lot of artists feel like they're not being supported by major labels, um, at least if they're not priority artists. Um, marketing departments are already strapped for like marketing budgets I feel to like spread evenly among all their artists is kind of my impression so to have um like a fictional character included in that mix uh would be strange if like a universal music group were, were to launch a film division um create a new series and then release uh, like an album featuring those characters like people playing those characters that would be less far-fetched and there's like um there's definitely precedent for that um but if they're just signing like an avatar artist to a record deal, I feel like that would um that would just have give them a very bad reputation in in this moment is is my impression. So perfect segue into a lot of your writing about music and how it joins with comic books or how it intersects with um, fitness, which we've talked about, or esports. So there's a couple headlines that have been, you know, going on between the gaming and music mm-hmm. worlds. Of course, uh, the rapper Logic recently retired, and you know, working on his family, retired, quote yeah. unquote, um, and focusing now on Twitch because his he's yeah. always had this reputation of being super into gaming, and now yeah. is kind of like going um, full bore into it. Um, in addition, uh, BTS, which is no stranger stranger to the gaming world, uh, now working with Fortnite. Uh, which has mm. now built out its own stage in LA, and you know BTS is you know the latest to kind of go into that uh, gaming world themselves. I was actually curious about some of the demographics here and how what you thought mm. about this because I not one I'm just going to fall on statistics here because I don't want to fall into stereotypes, but I'm looking at uh, Fortnite demographics and it says I think this was 2019. Um, somewhere between 72 to 83 percent of Fortnite players are male. Mm-hmm. About the same for Twitch, I think, from mm-hmm. when I last saw. That might have been older. That might have been like 2017. Mm-hmm. Um, but and maybe there's been. I think there's been a shift more towards like an even kind of gender split. And then contrasting that with like BTS, which I'm looking on um, some of their audience demographics for, and this is across TikTok, Instagram, mm-hmm. and YouTube. Basically, the opposite. Same percentage, mm-hmm. uh, but the opposite. Um, so I'm just kind of curious what your thoughts are in terms of, you know, once we get past the initial, cool, this is music artists who are kind of getting into gaming because it's such a, you know, crazy market when it, in terms of just like sheer, you know, industry revenue, what, 
do you feel like it's going to shift at all um, in terms of, you know, now that artists are more game, pun fully intended, to participate in the gaming world? Will that shift kind of one side or the other? Do you feel like, you know, gaming, and I'm not just talking about gender at this point, it could be age, it could be, you know, geography, whatever. Do you feel like it's gonna, those two industries are going to have some kind of effect on each other? Yeah, for sure. I think uh, many layers to this. So one, I guess, uh, specifically to the Fortnite concerts, I also had this thought with um, Anderson Pack, who I think was the last artist to um, to perform in the Fortnite like Party Royale um, concert stage, and I'm not, I'm not totally sure about um, Anderson Pack, the, the 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 gender split of his listener base, but I have a sense of the like age range. And it seems very much outside the kind of people who would play Fortnite regularly. Like right. I, my sense is that most Fortnite players are definitely younger, whereas um, Anderson Pack's listeners are definitely older. So total speculation, but I feel like maybe either from the artist side or from like Fortnite side, these concerts are being framed as um, you know allowing uh, like allow, allow artists to reach the kids, reach the youth, <laughs> and kind of like market to them in a much more engaging way that um, they would otherwise on like, you know, your standard social media platform or streaming service. So that's, that's just like one thought that I had. Um, two, real I quick, feel like, yeah. Real quick. I just want to pop in. So I'm just looking at some stats on Fortnite because this is just fascinating. Oh yes. Mm-hmm. So Nuzu, which collects a lot of statistics on, mm-hmm. on gaming, uh, found that 53% of Fortnite players were aged 10 to 25. Wow. Yeah. Okay. That's over half 10 to 25. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah. Whereas my sense is that most of most of Anderson Pack's like songs and also like the content of his songs too, it's like definitely aim more towards like adults, so like twenty five and older. So yeah, kind of interesting that um, I guess they're recruiting and partnering with artists who fall outside of their immediate demographic. But um, to go to the I guess the wider topic of how music and gaming will like impact each other, I do think with the commercial success of certain games like Fortnite. Um, with the commercial success of the esports circuit, like the competitive circuit, and how like stadiums will be sold out in like hours, you know, for these world championship tournaments, and that kind of making the headlines, making the rounds in like the business world in general. Um, I think that has thrown gaming into like the pop culture sphere at large. Whereas um, my sense is that like in, in previous decades, it was kind of seen as not not as like a niche thing, but not as like a as cool of a thing. But now it's like to say that you're like a gamer, you're in esports. I think there's like more of a, um, at least in in like the wider in wider mainstream culture, there's like people's like ears will perk up when you say that. It's like oh, it's so cool. Like how how did you get into it? Like what are you doing in that space? So so there's kind of like a reputational change that um, then as they as the as gaming gets more mainstream, I think there is also more pressure. Um, justified pressure to um, embrace diversity more, to just to be more diverse, both in in terms of like the um, artists featured, and also in terms of like gamers um, who are featured um, on these teams or who are featured on like platforms like Twitch as well. Um, I feel like probably out of all the bigger companies, uh, League of Legends is doing this in an interesting way because they so they have. Speaking of um, avatar artists and like fictional artists, they have like multiple fictional groups now. Uh, of there's like they have a K-pop group and they have a hip-hop group. 
all like uh, performed, I guess, or played by real world artists, but they have fictional names. Um, they have avatars that I guess are represented in the game. Um, and those groups mostly exist. My sense is to like bring people more into the game and sell more skins. So there is definitely like a closed commercial loop there. Um, but in terms of like the the artists and the faces they're using to build out that music strategy, it is more diverse, like more people of color, um, definitely more women. Um, Fortnite so far, all of the artists, um, they featured have been male. And so uh, hopefully that'll become more diverse over time. But um, but yeah, it, it'll be, yeah, I feel like I guess as these, as these game brands uh, game developers and brands try to expand more into becoming more like pop culture brands. Um, I think they will have to like take that culture part seriously and um, hopefully bring in more more diverse voices. But we'll see. Yeah, as of right now, with the exception of like a handful of initiatives, it is very um, it, it is very male centric. Do you have a sense for how music in film differs from music in gaming, especially with regard mm. to audience reach impact yeah good question i think the opportunities for what you can do creatively and commercially are much wider in gaming just by nature of like what you can do with a game versus with a movie so like with music and film i guess you can uh like license you can you know sync music to in the background for certain movies or um in some cases i guess use your name and likeness to make a biopic that's kind of the extent um of like the opportunity there commercially that I see. Whereas in gaming, oh, this is this is another um, important element of like gaming as like a pop culture phenomenon. I feel like Fortnite and uh, certain other games or game platforms like Roblox are increasingly being seen and also being used just as social platforms. I think this is why Fortnite, you know, launched Party Royale, like the non-combat mode, because they noticed people were just socializing in the game or like hanging out in the game and wanted to create a space just for that for people who didn't necessarily want to, um, you know, just, just fight in the game. Um, and so, so as a result of, so, sorry, to, to bring it back to like how music and how the music and gaming industry is traditionally partnered. I think if you look at like the eighties, nineties, early two thousands, it was mostly still around sync. Like, Oh, labels will say, Oh, this is a great opportunity for us to promote this new song um, or to revive this old song, I feel like games like Guitar Hero played a really important role in, in that. Um, but it was still through the framework of licensing. Whereas now that these games, a lot more of these bigger games are becoming social spaces, are becoming event spaces, that does dramatically increase the, the kinds of initiative events you can do. So you can like uh, do a whole immersive concert, or I guess Im the, the Travis Scott concert, I wouldn't characterize it as a concert. It was more like an immersive film like interactive film because it wasn't like Travis performing um, in contrast to like Marshmallow's show uh, last year in 2019, which like he had a whole mocap suit and it was him. So um, they're like different approaches, but yeah, you can do these like immersive interactive films. Um, you can do festivals like in, like a lot of people have done festivals in Minecraft kind of in a very DIY way. Um, you can do meet and greets. Oh, you can sell merch, like in the form of branded skins. I think Travis Scott, as an example, like benefited a lot from this uh, around his Fortnite show. Um, and then you can kind of like license or even like sell music in the game as well. So I think just the range of opportunity is is so much wider. Um, 
And also my sense is that people who spend, this is a very, I guess, like commercial, like take on it, but people who spend their time playing games do it for much longer on a much more regular basis and like watching movies. I think the hours played definitely tend to be much longer. So in terms of like, have like having people's attention, that's definitely a draw for, from, from the music side as well. What about um, film sort of learning or taking a page out of gaming's playbook? And like, say you're watching a Netflix show and <clears throat> a track comes on in a certain scene and a little icon pops up, says, add to Spotify. Mm, mm. Do you foresee something like this happening or would that be too obtrusive? Mm. So, so some people have talked about actually a much more obtrusive uh, version of that, which is like shoppable TV which like, I don't even know if I'd want, but like if, you know, you're seeing like people wearing certain clothes or um, they have certain like devices, um, a little thing will pop up in the corner being like, buy this now. Like, I, I feel like that's kind of a definitely, yeah, more invasive experience. With music, yeah, so people have been talking about like the as as yet missed opportunity of like Netflix and Spotify partnering in this way, because I think Spotify also wants to, see itself as more of like a pop culture platform. So they have um, a lot of playlists around like Hulu shows, as I've noticed, um, like the soundtrack or songs featured in, in specific TV shows or movies. Um, I think so. there's definitely at least like a marketing partnership there, if not like some kind of um, like product integration. I can definitely see that. I, I think, I guess people um, already do this naturally with like Shazam. So I think that's already like a natural way that that it happens. Um, but yeah, I'm kind of thinking out loud. I, I think like adding music to um, a playlist, like kind of as you're watching, would it necessarily be invasive, especially if people are using Shazam? It's just a matter of like making sure you can do it without like leaving the window. Because I think as of right now, you would have to like open a new tab open Spotify, make sure it landed in a playlist. If, you, if there's a way to make that much smoother, um, I think that would be, uh, that would be great. But um, yeah, I guess we'll, we'll see if, if that ever happens. I feel like there's been a lot of talk of like a potential partnership, but it just hasn't materialized yet. How Music Charts is written and produced by Jason Hoven and Rutger Rosenborg of Chartmetric. Free Chartmetric accounts are available at chartmetric.com and article links and show notes are at podcast.chartmetric.com. If you want more insights delivered to your inbox when we publish, subscribe to our blog at blog.chartmetric.com. As always, feel free to say hi to us on our socials as well. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time for part two of our conversation about the future of the music business with Sherry Hugh.